So we're going to go ahead and dive right into part two in our series, Unqualified. This is a study of discipleship out of the Gospels. If you want to put your finger somewhere in your Bibles, you can look at Luke 6, verses 12 through 16, and John 16, verses 1 through 15. That's where we're going to be this week. And the goal of our six-week series, the series Unqualified, simply is this, that we are working to familiarize ourselves individually with the path that each of us is on along the continuum, up the path, up the trail. We're going in a certain direction from the day that we as individuals make a confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior until the day that we snatch up our last breath this side of heaven is a discipleship journey. It doesn't end. It's not a one-stop shop, I got that figured out, I accepted Jesus once kind of journey. That's just the starting line for those of us who are being renewed day by day, who are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, hoping to look a little bit more like Jesus every day, more than we did the day before. That's a discipleship journey. That's what we're working on, from the confession in Jesus to a fully formed disciple, a denier of one's self, a committed follower of Jesus. This is what we're working on. So I want us to think well for a few minutes before we get into the Word. I want to think about where we are individually in this process that might inform where we are corporately in this process because we cannot be who God has called us to be as a full group of people unless he's working on us as individuals. The dangerous thing about a group mindset, there's a thing called groupthink. Has anyone ever heard of groupthink before? Groupthink is when a large group of people or maybe animals like sheep. (laughs) It's funny that God calls us sheep as much as he does in the Bible because collectively sheep are the stupidest group of animals on the face of the planet. It's proven. One sheep, if wandering off a cliff, will be followed by every sheep in the herd until they're all off the cliff, until they're all out there. Groupthink is what happens when we're with a bunch of people and we think, well, they'll take care of it. I'll just follow along with them. I'll just go places with them. And especially in cities, it's dangerous because we don't always wait for crosswalks. We don't always pay attention to the safety of the surroundings that we're in because we're in groupthink. We're surrendering our responsibilities to the whole group. And if the whole group does that, look out. So we have to think about ourselves individually if we have discipleship goals for us as a full community. So what are the key performance indicators in business? They call them KPIs that we are achieving what we set out to achieve as South Everett Foursquare missionaries. And it's true that the depth of our belief, right? So belief, the depth of our conviction, the depth of our resolve to do something is measured by our propensity to do what it is that we say we will do. Okay? These things are connected. Give me some examples. Well, if I believe that I am loved by God, then the appropriate step in action following that will be, I will take good care of my body. I will take good care of my mind. I will take good care of my soul. If I am loved by God, then it follows that I will also love other people well. And I will set up healthy boundaries in those relationships so I don't get into doing for somebody else what they need to be doing for themselves because that's not good for me and I'm loved by God, so I want to take care of myself. 
My counselor, who I go to see, frequently says to me, Chris, are you being kind to yourself? And some days I am, and some days I'm not. But if I believe that I'm loved by God, then it will follow that I will love myself well, I will love my neighbor well. Another example, I believe that I am forgiven by God, and so it will follow that because I am forgiven by God, that I will forgive others who have trespassed against me. Because I've trespassed against him and he set me free. If I believe that I have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, then I will be the transforming presence of Jesus in the lives of people who have not yet experienced his transforming power. So if I believe that I am loved, if I believe that I am forgiven, and if I believe that I am empowered, I will do things that will make me look like a disciple, someone who is following after the Lord in everything that they do. We're all on this hill from the point that we've made a confession in faith in Jesus Christ Christ, to the day that we take our last breath this side of heaven. We're on this journey. Maybe some haven't entered into it yet. Maybe some in this room have said, I haven't exactly fully signed up to follow Jesus yet. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you've been hurt by followers of Jesus in the past and you need a follower of Jesus to talk to it, to talk to them about the hurt that you've incurred. That's okay. That's part of the responsibility of the body is to walk people through the hurdles that they face in terms of believing in Jesus so they can come to follow Jesus. Everyone is welcome on the pursuit after Jesus. It's so important for us to remember everybody is welcome regardless of our belief or our current pursuit of him. It's the way Jesus lived with other people. He just welcomed everybody in at the place where they were at and said, it's okay that you hang out here and ask your questions and let's work on your pain and let's see where we go from there. We're arguing in this series, and a lot of it is based on personal experience, that calling ourselves a believer in Jesus is much more difficult than calling ourselves followers of Jesus. Because to believe, as we've talked about, is easy. So it's easy to say things. It's hard to do things. To say things, to believe things, is to be a Christian. Just a Christian. We can start there. That's a fine place to start. And by the way, that's the only thing we need for salvation. It's the only thing is a confession of faith. We're not saved by our works. But the Word says that if we are indeed saved, then works will follow. Because the Spirit is alive in us. Saved by faith, which is evidenced by works, but saved by faith. Amen? The New Testament makes three references to the word Christian. Christiano in the Greek. It makes 269 references to the word mathetes, which is disciple. 269 references. It's just much harder to define a disciple than it is a Christian because disciples have to do all kinds of stuff that mere believers don't have to do by way of definition. But a disciple is a Christian. Here's the change. A disciple is a Christian who takes on the posture of a student. That's what a disciple is, a posture of a student, the posture of a learner. A Christian who becomes a follower is a disciple. And disciples embrace discipline. Disciples embrace discipline. According to my own experience, discipline is the purposeful denial of selfishness. I am personally going to deny myself certain things that I want, and I'm going to stop pursuing false means of comfort 
in pursuit of a common good that is greater than me. I'm going to deny myself stuff, comfort. I'm going to deny myself positions of authority. I might deny myself some pride. I might deny myself a little bit of recognition. I might deny myself a little something to eat like that bowl of ice cream because I just want to feel comfortable. I just want to feel comfortable. You all know what I'm talking about. We're human. It's going to happen to us. But to say, I will deny some of those things in pursuit of the Lord. I know that when I deny myself food and a short fast, I become very aware of how out of control I really am in regards to my circumstances. You ever done that before? Stopped eating for a day and realized, like, I'm awfully fragile as a human. And I can either fill that space with my own doings or I can let God fill it up. We will deny ourselves things to hear clearly the voice of the Lord. So there's this definition again is the purposeful denial of selfishness and the false pursuits of comfort in pursuit of a common good, common good. My sacrifice will be for the common good of the whole community, right? The common good of everyone around me is why I deny myself. There's some pictures of denial that I like. Uh, This is one. This is a, when I think about denial, when I think about sacrifice, when I think about discipline, it's images like this of people who will go into battle zones. That one guy carrying the other guy was already free, but he probably went back to carry out somebody else who wasn't ready to carry themselves out yet. That's one image of discipline. Here's another one, an entirely different image. But it's important to remember in a series on discipleship that if we're not thinking about this in the context of our own home first, we have no business thinking about it anywhere else. We are disciples in our own home context, whatever that looks like. And this work is just as hard as the war in some circumstances. These are equal kinds of sacrifice. They're equitable. They're just different. Does that make sense? This is the kind of discipline, the denial of self. Leave that picture up there for one more second. The denial of self. Why is that so important? Because if that little girl grows up without her daddy, nothing else that we do goes according to the shalom of the city, the peace and the prosperity of the land where God has called us to. So this takes place in its basic form, and then sometimes it didn't work out that way for us. We've talked about this. This didn't work out for all of us this way. And that's what the body of Christ is for, that we discipline ourselves so that we can invest in others who aren't biologically related but are theologically related because we all confess Christ and we all sacrifice our lives for his purposes to raise up kids that aren't ours. Amen? Different kinds of sacrifice, whatever your context happens to be. So here's a question that goes along with this. Why has Christianity become so bitter on the tongue of so many people in our nation today? Why is it when we talk about faith, why is it when we talk about I go to church or I love Jesus, so many people in our community do that? Ugh, I can't stand that. Those hypocritical, egotistical, over-politicized, self-focused narcissists that don't care about people. You might say that's an overreaction until we get ourselves out of our faith-based context sometimes. There are lots of people that feel like that. And it's our job to go out and tell a different story. 
and listen to people. Don't argue with people, but listen for understanding from people who feel like that about us. It's important that we know that there's a world full of people that feel this way about us. It's a sobering reality, not to beat ourselves over the head, but to say, hey, guess what? By God's grace, we can do better than this as disciples of Jesus Christ who lay our lives down. Could it be that people make faces like this in our culture because they found our faith to be somewhat extreme and a little bit irrelevant? Could it be that many who profess Jesus have been long resting in their pursuits where it's just become comfortable? I believe it's so nice to believe. I get all these benefits. I don't have to worry about the cross. But I have decided to follow Jesus, and there is no turning back. The world is behind me. The cross is before me, and I'm going for it regardless of what the costs are. That's a hard thing to do. Because in some instances, we've adopted false comforts instead of kids in our neighborhood. We're looking for comfort in all the wrong places. Jesus is the only one that comforts for good, and it's a comfort that hurts. It's a little counterintuitive. It feels good much later once we discipline ourselves to walking down the road that he's called us to walk in the moment. Could it be that we've in, unhitched our actions from our beliefs? That's why it's important that our beliefs and our actions go together. Discipleship is connecting our behaviors back to our belief systems. I believe in forgiveness. I believe I've been forgiven. And so I will forgive. I believe that the Lord has called me to rest. And so sometimes I will rest. There's all kinds of ways that we connect our beliefs back to our behaviors. Discipleship is pouring into other people. We had a visual of that last week of, of pouring, lavishing buckets of love on Vaughn's head until <laughs> there was a picture of pouring into people. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, for that is who we are. We pour into other people. That's all discipleship is. Pouring love into people, both the love of grace and the love of truth at the same time. What are we to model? Generosity, forgiveness, purity, truth-telling. Let's model that for a minute. Let's model humility and patience and love. So how do we do it? This, this sermon this morning, this message... I've entitled The Divine Ambush. You've heard me talk about that before. That'll make more sense in a minute if you haven't been here. But it could also be called The Anatomy of Discipleship. Anyone in here like taking stuff apart to figure out how it works? Ralph, I was thinking of you. <laughs> like to take things apart. Who likes to take things apart to figure out how they work? Okay, this message is for you today because we're going to take discipleship apart to figure out how it works. How do we do this? How do we keep our actions in our beliefs lined up with one another. There's a workshop involved with it. There's work to do with this. I'm going to show you how I do this. One way that I do it. Zach, can you put that up there? This is my discipleship wheel. And it's going to be hard to read from where you are, but these are the top eight priorities that I've established in my life. I filled this out once a week. I filled it out this morning. I took a picture of it and put it up there to be real vulnerable about where I'm at with my priorities. Up here go the eight things in life, the eight categories that I need to keep in check as a follower of Jesus. They're not all the same for everybody because God's made us individually. I kind of geek out on assignments like this because I like analyzing things, so this may be harder for some than it is for others. But for me, the things that I know I need to have in my life to keep my actions and my behaviors tied to each other is intimacy with Jesus. 
What does that look like? It looks like actually spending time in the Bible, actually journaling and reflecting, actually praying, actually sitting still. Another priority is my wife, Katrina, and our children. I have this thing that goes on in my head. It's called same Saturday, same Sunday, which means if I show up here with a bright, smiley face on on Sunday and it doesn't reflect the same person that existed within my home on Saturday, there's a problem. That's an integrity issue. doesn't mean we're not going to have fits or things aren't going to, but generally my kids are going to know that the same dad who's here on Sunday is the same dad that they experienced on Saturday. Does that make sense? Discipleship in the home. And maybe we had a hard day on Saturday, which means I might be having a harder day on Sunday, and that's okay. It just has to be the same. We have to be the same people everywhere we go. Physical health for me is a priority. That means diet, eating well. It means exercising, like actually going to the YMCA or getting on my bike or going for a run. Actually going to bed on time and getting enough sleep. Adventure-based discipleship. This is vocation. This is purpose. This is every day getting up and feeling like the thing that I'm going to do is going to make an impact in the lives of other people to the glory of God. I want to live a life that makes a difference for people because that's why God put me here and filled me with the Spirit. That's really important. Friendship and accountability. Having people that are going to ask me, hey, did you exercise? Hey, were you, did you spend time journaling and reflecting and reading God's Word? Hey, did you go on a date with your wife? Did you pay attention to your kids when they were talking to me, to you? Friendship and accountability. We need people in our lives that will actually do that for us. Ask us the hard questions, the uncomfortable questions, the poor. I mean, I could, this isn't so much about who has what in their pockets and who lives under what roof as much as it is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At the baseline, how does a world that's so divided get along? What is our greatest common denominator? It's that without the grace of Jesus, we're all done. That's the, that's the poor that I'm talking about. I also want to give some credit to the socially, economically poor. Because for those who are less socioeconomically poor, we have a lot to learn from those who are finding joy and satisfaction in all the right things. It would be a blessing, and this is one of those hard things to say, to experience a, less, a lesser amount of affluence in my life. We all, most of us, live fairly affluently. I would suggest that most didn't miss a meal this morning. Most drove a car that worked. They got here. We could depend on the money in our pocket to go where we wanted and make the decisions that we wanted to make. But having so much affluence makes me more reliant on me and less reliant on the Lord. I've learned so much from those who have less affluence than I do. I have a friend who's from Kenya. We worked at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission together. And he talked about two kinds of persecution. He talked about the persecution in the nation that he grew up in when people would come in actually on trucks with guns in the beds of trucks and shoot up villages. He would talk about that kind of persecution. Then he talked about the persecution that he felt and faced in the United States, the, the persecution of affluence and apathy. And we're having this conversation in February of 2017. I'll never forget exactly where we were sitting when he said it. He goes, I'll take that kind of persecution over this kind of persecution every day. I say, you got to tell me more about that before I believe you. He goes, you can see that one. 
The one here is like a gas that puts you to sleep for good. At least I could see what was coming at me. The kind of persecution we face in the United States is about affluence and apathy. The poor. That has to matter to me at my core every day. I've got to reconcile my spiritual poverty with Jesus every day. And so does everybody else. And that's what makes us common. It's what gets us over every other barrier that this world throws at us, is our common shared poverty, all 7.4 billion of us. Amen? Amen. Lifelong learning and fun. I took up too much time on the poor. These are my priorities. This is important. You can do this. Ask me. I will email you this. You can start working on your own. But it's what connects our beliefs and our behaviors because we come back and check. How am I doing? Just so you know, any other raging perfectionists out there, you can't actually have the whole thing filled at once and keep breathing. This is a dashboard. It means that some weeks we're going to pour into other things more than others, so long as there's a balance, right? It's a dashboard like in our car. It just tells us how the week was going. I've got a problem right now. The problem right now is that adventure-based discipleship has been running hot for probably three months. It's been running higher than physical health, than my family, than my intimacy with Jesus, than my fun, my lifelong learning, the poor, and friendship and accountability for at least three months. That's a problem. It means that all the doing that I like to do for Jesus has to be met again by my being with Jesus if I'm going to survive. That's a common thing for most of us. It's the pursuit of the thing God set before us. But he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And everything else will be added. This is a glimpse into my discipleship journey with Jesus. And it has my friends asking me hard questions. I have a friend named JJ. He's in charge of city life. <laughs> he, I saw him at an event the other week. I wanted to tell him about all these cool things I was doing. Because I'm still arrogant and prideful and egotistical sometimes. He says, you're a staff of one. You know that, right? <laughs> then he walked away. It's friendship. When Ralph, who runs the podcast in the back of the room, says, I'm concerned about your Sabbath rest. These are things I need to pay attention to. And I am. These things aren't all zeros. But it means i got to say, slow the roll on the vision sometimes. But this is how we live in our relationship with Jesus. So what's the pursuit? What's the thing that we're going after? That's the question we've been asking in this series. What's the thing that God has called us to as followers of Jesus? How are we moving up the path to the summit that makes us fully formed disciples? What's the thing that we're pursuing right now that's costing us something? We need to know that individually if we're going to pursue it collectively. So that's what makes this series of messages an actual workshop. It requires us to think well. And that's what we're going to do as we walk in this today. Again, this series, message part two, the divine ambush. Jesus in John 16, which we'll get to, while talking to his disciples about the work of the Holy Spirit, said to his disciples, and by the way, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. Interesting. What's God want to say to me that I can't bear yet? That's alarming. If we really start thinking about, oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit, we got, we got things we want to say to you, but you can't, you're not ready for it yet. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. 
Following Jesus up the hill, up the trail, up the path is more costly than we will ever know from the outset. If we knew from the end what he was calling us to follow him after in the beginning, we would never go. Promise you. We wouldn't go after what he was calling us to if we knew what it was going to cost us along the way. And so I would decide that it's, by, it's not that he's some sort of sadistic God that just wants to trap us in a bait and switch. It's by his grace that he does this because he has decidedly left us on a need-to-know basis. Isn't that nice to have people above you that need to know stuff you don't need to know? You ever been to the top where you knew it all? And everyone else just got to live under the grace of not having to know everything. That's the problem with executive leadership is you've got to know most of the stuff, the scary stuff. Presidents of the United States get up every day and get a briefing that would make most of us melt in our shoes and crumble into little huddles and hide in caves. But that's why they're the president. That's why the Lord has graced every president we've ever had with grace and wisdom and knowledge. That's why we pray for our leaders regardless of who they are. Because they will carry a weight we don't have to carry. Jesus carried a cross that we will never carry. Even though we pick up ours, it's a little one. Right? It's by his grace that he's left us on a need-to-know basis. Hey, follow me. Where are we going? You don't need to know that yet. (laughs) Apply it to what God is calling you to do, Ashley. Two to four years at Seattle Pacific University. Give her a hand. That's coming this fall. If you knew it all, you wouldn't go. Go anyways. Because he's still going to meet us there where we go. We just, you know, does that make sense? It's also grace because if we decided not to go, follow this, if we decided not to go and then someday got a glimpse of how it would have been if we had gone, we could never live with ourselves for staying where we did, not enduring the cost because we wouldn't get the reward. It's grace both directions. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. So to make proper sense of our own experience as disciples, we need to anchor ourselves in the Word of God. In the Gospel Narrative, part one of our series last week, the not-for-profit church introduced us to a framework as disciples that started with Adam, and then went to Noah and Abraham, and from Abraham, 41 generations to Jesus. From Jesus to the Spirit, to the disciples, to the leaders of the early church, to the people that raised you up and me up, and the people that we're raising up. This long view of discipleship is that God is always pouring into every generation. He's with us by the power of His Spirit. I suggested that as the not-for-profit church, we're selling everything back that's comfortable. We're selling it all back, the false pursuits of comfort. And we're not making any money in the deal. We're only making disciples. We're making more people who understand that following Jesus at all costs is worth it. That's what it means to make disciples, who make disciples. Not just raising up followers that stay followers until you leave and then fall apart. People that you can pour into for a certain amount of time, and that once you're out of their life because they went somewhere else, that they go to make disciples who go and make disciples, who raise up more leaders. In his first years of public ministry, Jesus showed compassion towards people. His teachings tasted sweeter on the tongues than those of uh, in the community who abused people religiously. 
There's a whole bunch of people in first century Judaism with that bitter taste on their mouth because of what the religious leaders were doing. Jesus' message was sweeter. His demonstration of power that healed the blind and the, and the mute and the deaf and the crippled, all these people, he demonstrated power in the lives of, and people started paying attention. He drew lots of disciples, thousands of them. Thousands of people were following after Jesus. And simultaneously, power and influence was shifting in society. Less power in the places where it existed, in the government, less power in the institution of church, more power in the living Son of God who was Jesus. This power shift was going on, and it made the religious leaders nervous. It made the church people nervous that he was actually, Jesus was going out and making disciples out of people. Jesus was generally unimpressed and unswayed by these traditions. He said, I know where I'm going. I've got my little discipleship wheel of priorities, and I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And I'm held accountable by the, by the Father and by the Spirit because I'm a communal God. I only do what he says. Jesus had friendship and accountability within the triune persons of God, and then he had friendship and accountability with those that followed after him. So it was getting a little bit intense in Luke chapter 6. Jesus was pairing physical healing with the forgiveness of sin. He was putting those things two, two things together and making claims about his godship, his lordship. He was eating with sinners. He was picking grain and healing lame guys on the Sabbath. Time was running short. And the tensions were mounting. The religious leaders were threatened by him. And the Gospels talk about plots to kill him and take him out. And Jesus knew that it was coming. It was time to take from the thousands that followed all the way down to the twelve. In choosing twelve disciples, he was making a nonverbal rebuke of the twelve tribes of Israel and their inability to disciple people well. It was loud when he chose 12. Let's look at that. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. It says, One of those days Jesus went out to a mountaintop to pray. This is as the tension mounts earlier in chapter 5 and 6. It says, And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whose name would be Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. These were the twelve that he called. These were common men. These were men that had no association with the religious leadership of the day. They weren't rabbis, they weren't priests, they weren't Pharisees, they weren't Sadducees, they were just 12 common, ordinary people. And that's not to say that Jesus picked them by happenstance. He didn't like go around and eeny, meeny, miny, mow them off the conveyor belt. He didn't do that. <laughs> he was purposeful in choosing them, he was purposeful in choosing us, but it's okay that we're common. I love the intentionality that Jesus put into it. The word, the phrase in the Greek, which I'm not even going to try this morning because I'll butcher it, this phrase, spent the whole night 
is only used once in the New Testament. It's a word used by physicians. Funny thing, Luke was a doctor, that he would use a physician kind of word. But the word is the same in regards to staying up all night, spent the whole night. Same word that you would associate with a doctor who would go and hold vigil with a dying patient. That level of intentionality, concern, and care. Jesus spent the whole night picking out that band of brothers. We, they, all of us may be unqualified, but we weren't chosen on accident. It's one of my favorite stories from our time at the mission. I have a friend named Robert Toll. I've known Robert for a little over 10 years now. Robert's on my right. It's a guy named David on my left. Robert, at that point, had been homeless for 20 years. had come up from San Francisco, the Bay Area, about 10 years earlier, but was just living on the streets, void of relationship with family. We went and spent five days living at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, and I formed a relationship with Robert. In that picture, we had taken a walk down to Wajamaya in the International District, bought some gummy bears, because I just really wanted some, I just wanted gummy bears. I just wanted them. I'm like, Robert, and I've been talking about it all day. I'm like, Robert, that's it. I can't talk about this anymore. We're going. So Robert and I, we'd known each other a few days, took a walk, got some gummy bears, right? And then we're on our way back. Robert and I forged a friendship. He starts attending Eastside Foursquare Church. He gets baptized. We're in relationship. Dude's been to my house. He learned to start taking better care of himself. In fact, he's lost about 75 pounds. I still know Robert. Robert is still struggling, and he's still homeless. But I still know Robert, and he's still my friend. I can't fix everything. We can't fix everything, but we can have friendships. And people can be used by God even in homelessness, even in brokenness, even when they're unqualified. And one day I came up and I saw Robert, and he was so excited. He goes, Chris, you wouldn't believe what happened all day today. And I said, well, what happened? He goes, well, a woman came down to the mission because she couldn't find her son. And she had no idea about how it worked down here in this urban jungle, and she had no idea where he might be. But I spent the whole day going with her from place to place to place, trying to find out more information about her son. We haven't found him yet, but I got to help her all day long. And I'm like, Robert, this is great. And he throws up his fists in the air, and he just kind of shouts in the sky, says, God is using me! Thirty years Robert's been homeless. Now, I can't fix that. We've tried. But he's still out there being used by God. He's a disciple of Jesus. For crying out loud, the kingdom works differently than we think it does. Jesus would have picked Robert. That guy is what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Right? Next chart. This is where we're going to break this down just a little bit. We read this passage of Scripture. There's actually four places. There you go. There's four places in Scripture that list the disciples. We read from Luke 6. The disciples, the 12, are also listed in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, Mark, chapter 3. And again, we hear about them in Acts 1.13. What's interesting about this list as we look at it is that although the order of the disciples are mixed up a little bit, they all stay within three specific groupings of four. And the leader, the first one mentioned, right, the fifth one mentioned and the ninth one mentioned are always the same. Simon Peter, Philip, and James, the son of Alphaeus, assumed to be kind of the leaders of those little small groups. They're all listed in the same kind of way. And then in there we get different listings of Andrew, James, and John. But again, Andrew, James, and John, 
Andrew, James, and John, and Andrew, James, and John. This happens all the way down the list. That They're all listed, even though the names get mixed up in different orders. Does this make sense? You guys following this? What's really interesting about this is what it tells us about the groupings. We know that at the top of the groups were Peter, Philip, and James. And then these groups go into sending order in terms of proximity and intimacy with Jesus, and then also reference within the Gospels. So we hear about Peter... James and John a lot. Andrew's in the top three. He doesn't get mentioned quite as much, but if you read through the Gospels, you hear about Peter, James, and John a lot. This was Jesus' inner circle. In discipleship, these are the people that were closest to him. In fact, in the top two, there's two sets of brothers up there, right? James and John were brothers. Peter and Andrew were brothers. So two sets of brothers that were in the top, they were all vocationally fishermen. That's what they did. They didn't go to seminary. They caught fish. And then Jesus spoke to their context and said, I don't need you to quit, quit being a fisherman. You're going to fish for people now. What's that tell us about if our gifts don't feel like they line up with working in a church? Right? Vanessa's a bus driver. It's, it's incredible, but she's not. She's a discipler of kids all day long. Same kids all year in the morning, in the evening. Elementary, junior high, high school, high school, elementary, junior high. She's working with these kids in and out, in and out. Could you say that you could be a minister of the gospel as a bus driver? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to go visit Rich at work tomorrow. Rich works, he's that they don't catch fish, but they fix boats, right? He works down at the dock. He'd go into category one, right? Those people, <laughs> He pastors a whole group of people that don't know Jesus yet. who have come from very rough and tumble backgrounds, which end them in the kind of work that he's doing. You're a disciple. Who makes disciples? Who makes disciples? So these groups go in group two and group three. Group two, they're people that are still recorded in Scripture, but not as much. And then more, three is, is more distant than anyone else in those groups. But these men were from all kinds of backgrounds. They were fishermen, tax collectors, Simon the Zealot was a political activist. Jesus loved them too. Well, too soon. (laughs) In the Gospel of Mark, he talks about personalities. The Gospel of Mark, Mark calls James and John the sons of thunder because of their temper issues. So you can be a follower of Jesus even if you have a temper Peter had the foot in the mouth disorder. He also had a hard time getting out ahead of himself. There's a picture, I think, of Peter that I found. Um, there he is. <laughs> that was Peter a lot, getting way out ahead of himself. Then Jesus called him bad names like Satan. He got back on the cliff and then he did it again. But Andrew was more timid. John didn't say a lot. Thomas doubted. But God picked all of us to be a part of his family. Every single one of us. All who have placed their faith in Jesus, who will do what he said to do. He chose 12. He qualified them by his grace. And then he took 12 disciples and he turned them into apostles. That's what we see happening here. There's lots of disciples. An apostle is someone who's deeply, deeply invested and who carries the message of the king, not just as the messenger, but as one who embodies the message. That's what that word apostle says. That your word, this message belongs to you as much as it does the one who sent you with it. 
I'm not just telling you what the king said. I'm the king telling you what's going on. Jesus empowers us to do everything that we couldn't do without his strength. He says, go in my name and do greater things than I will. They didn't get there overnight. The disciples did not get there overnight. We will not get there overnight. It will take time. It will take years, and then it will take more years, and we're always working out our faith with fear and trembling. The goal of the series is to get a little bit further down the path from believer in Jesus to follower after Jesus. What does that look like for each of us? For the disciples, it looked like there was a conversion, and then there was a calling. This, a lot of this is... is uh, suggestions and observations made by John MacArthur in his book, 12 Ordinary Men. Good book. Good book in terms of just understanding how some of this breaks down. But he says that there's conversion, and then there's a point where we were called, where we really realized that he wanted our lives. Then there's the apostleship. This was the internship. And then there was a time of teaching. And then, this is the really scary part, and I don't know if it will actually take all of our physical lives, but Christians are dying all over the world every day for their faith. That's a thing. And I don't like to think about that very much, but I make myself think about it because it's part of the way that I carry the cross of other people. All right? We pray for the persecuted church, and in that we, we begin to find ourselves in it. But it, it may not cost me ultimately my physical life. Who knows? It may. Um, but if it doesn't, it better cost me most everything else. It better mean that every day I was laying my life down and saying, what can I do today for the good of somebody else besides me? Day after day after day. It's going to feel like little steps. But eventually it's going to look like walking into elementary schools to do your little obedient thing, whatever it is, to help a kid read the Bible or figure out their math homework. And it's going to mean kids in droves flocking to your sides. It was the best part of my Thursday watching my friend Tyrone just be obedient day after day after day. Brian was there with me. We got to witness this. We showed up. What are you guys doing here? Oh, we're just waiting for Mr. Tyrone. Mr. Tyrone is coming. Mr. Tyrone is coming. Mr. Where is he? Where is he? You know, it didn't matter that we were there, right? Because we hadn't put any investment into that place hardly yet, right? When Mr. Tyrone showed up, he walked in, I took a picture, and it's just kids swarming around him. I'm like, that's discipleship. That's laying your life down every day for the good of other people. More people are doing stuff like that. More of us will do things like that. It's what God has called us to do, but it's tough. The divine ambush, it's going to be harder than we thought. We wouldn't go, and an ambush is something that happens when you're walking down a path and you get attacked without knowing it. This is a divine ambush because it's going to happen to us, but God's in it. Make sense? We good? Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind they hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would 
not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for the sin. For whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen me and yet they have hated me, both me and my father. But this is to fill what is written in the law. They hate me without reason. When the advocate comes, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who will go out from the Father. He will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or have known me. These are sobering words. This is the divine ambush. This is going to cost us something. But it's worth it. Think about our big vision. Share it with someone today at the end of service in our time of conversation. What's God put on your heart? What's he calling you to do? I guarantee you it won't happen unless you tell people. I've found myself in a bit of a conundrum because I've started sharing more of my vision that the Lord has given me than I am comfortable with. Why? Because it's going to create a level of accountability that's going to keep me at the task. To see young leaders raised up in this community to become those who seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience, understanding, humility, Fighting for justice. It's going to take some of that political advocacy work that I poked fun at a minute ago. That's a real part of what the church is supposed to do. Because Simon the Zealot, the political advocate, he was part of them, right? It means going and making sure that our school systems have everything that they need, that our neighborhoods are safe, that we're supporting law enforcement and those who find themselves incarcerated. It's going to cost us something. What's God saying to each of us? Share it with somebody. I'm very uncomfortable sharing what God has said to me because at this point I don't know if I fully believe that he can do it, but I'm believing that he can do it. Does that make sense? I'm just you. We're just us. But what is God saying? And how can we work together to see it happen? Right? We're going to have to go up some hills. We're going to have to die to some things to get where he's going because we're called to follow after him. If I can say this without being too blunt, believers in Jesus are dying on a lot of stupid hills these days. We're dying on hills that don't matter. right? The teachers of the law, the ones who question Jesus about forgiving sins or picking grain or healing lame guys on the Sabbath, they all chose to die on stupid hills. Because their traditions, this applies to us, their traditions made it impossible for them to differentiate between what God was saying and what they were demanding of people. Jesus said to the church, you shut the door of the heavens in people's faces. Right? Let's not die on stupid hills. This pursuit of Jesus as disciples, the denial of self, this is a hill worth dying on. Right? Let's die on the right hills. I bet Tyrone's had to die on a lot of hills to see the fruit of the labor that was evidenced to Brian and I the other day when we were scouting Horizon as a place to meet this summer. Right? That happens all over the place, all over the times. So, Lord, we just ask that you would give us, again, space 
to consider, groups of people to consider with the things that you're calling us to. And that we wouldn't have to do it alone, that we wouldn't come up with a hundred different visions, but that we would share our visions, the things that God is giving to us, the things that you're giving to us, Lord. That we'd share us to, to those things together and by your divine wisdom, in the midst of a divine ambush, Lord, you would help us to know how to work together as one body, to do more than we could do by ourselves. And exceedingly less than we can do when we invite you in to be Lord of it all. So, Lord, thank you for this day, for this time. We pray in advance for the lunch that's about to take place at Chris Nixon's house. Thank you for all the preparation that's gone in. We pray, Lord, for our schools. We pray for Child Strive, for Hand in Hand, for, uh, Lord, we pray for Head Start. We pray for City Life, Casino Road Kids Ministries, all the work that you're doing. Unify us, give us peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a fantastic week. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.